This is Andrew from FX Medicine. We thank you so much for your support over the last two years. We'd really love to remain clinically relevant to your practice. So if you know of an expert in some area, please let us know. You can contact us on fxmedicine.com.au, Facebook or Twitter. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook, and I'm at the 2016 Bioceuticals Research Symposium. Joining me now in the studio is Dr. Mark Houston, a cardiologist of great renown and also Associate Clinical Professor of Medicine at Vanderbilt State Uni Medical Center. And I'd love to welcome you, Mark, to Pleasure to be here. Thank our you. new symposium, so thank you. It's a good time to be back. Genomics has exploded over the last decade or right. so. How crucial would you say now it is for you or for any practitioner to assess genetic SNPs to guide their therapy or would you place it as a secondary thing in those confounding uh, cases where usual treatment doesn't work? I think the uh, genomics has to now be part of your diagnosis and your treatment because the, the shotgun approach of this diet or this supplement or this drug is best for you has to now put into a totally different viewpoint, which is this drug based on your genetics will not work for you, but it will work for him or her. So when you look at the, the interaction of your environment, uh, we call it nutrigenomics, uh, nutrition and genomics, but it's also other environmental stimuli that affect your genes. The way those genes are expressed, positive or negative, determines the outcome. So for example, if I say to you, I think that you should take vitamin E or aspirin, and you look at me and you say, well, why do you say that? Because that's what the data shows. Well, the data may not show that because no one has really looked at genomic SNPs until recently. And all these data that's out there, you have a group that had no response, you had a group that had a great response, and you had a group that had an adverse response. But when you put it together, as you know, in statistics, which can lie mm. all the way to the bank, mm. you don't know who had what yeah. until you dissect out what is causing that nutrient genetic interaction. So it's population medicine versus it's population. Yes, yeah. it's yeah. totally population. So you can no longer deal with what we call double-blind control placebo trials that don't look at individual responses because you're looking at the bell-shaped curve of a population and not an individual. Treating cardiovascular disease to the best of any cardiologist ability has or carries a residual risk. And that residual risk can be sometimes quite high. We've looked at the function of lipoprotein molecules as a possible answer to address at least part of this residual risk. Does SNPs answer another section of this or is it encompassed in the whole of the treatment? Well, the residual risk basically means that about 50% of the population come into a hospital heart attack. You can't find the reason. Yeah. Because all of the things we check, we think that we think we have them controlled there's something They're missing, yeah. yeah. So the lipoprotein story is one part of that. 
So the old days was total cholesterol. That's obsolete. Then we went to LDL cholesterol. That's now obsolete. And now we've gone to LDL particle number and LDL particle size, which is up-to-date advanced cardiovascular lipid profiling. And then we've now dissected out that part to HDL. <clears throat> HDL high, HDL low. Well, that's no longer going to work either. So you got to look at, you know, you got HDL, but does it work? Yeah. It's like a truck with flat tires. You know, you have a lot of trucks, but they've got flat tires. They're not functional. So HDL functionality is a new term. It's getting very complicated. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> advanced lipid testing will take you to eat away at the CHD gap, but it still doesn't get you there. There's so many other modifiable risk factors that we're not measuring that need to be put into the equation, and genomics is one of those factors. Statins was the, the blockbuster group of drugs of the last two decades, but they seem to have sort of found their place and it's not as big a box as what we thought it was. Now you've got the PCSK9. PCSK9. Yeah, it's not a breed of dogs. Yeah. <laughs> Group of drugs on right. the horizon. Yeah. How exciting is this for you as a cardiologist, and where do you see those that that class of drugs fitting in with nutrigenomics and SNPs? Right. Well, if you're uh, the cholesterol-centric doctor, <clears throat> this is wonderful. Right. Because now you can drive the LDL down to zero. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, it's just like it's 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 becoming. Another tool to treat people who didn't respond to statins or could not take the statins because they had adverse effects. So you say, okay, you can't take a statin. We've got this new class that we can put you on, and I can drive your cholesterol down 60%, your, total, your LDL cholesterol, 60%. Or if you don't like the statins, we'll lower the dose a bit, put you on this PCSK9 inhibitor, and we can get you down to our goal, LDL cholesterol. So, you know, it looks good. It may pan out to be wonderful, but once again, it's looking at only lipids, which is not the whole story. So still, that attendant 40% odd yeah, residual my, risk My is... opinion is you're still going to have a gap mm. because uh, people don't even measure sometimes the right parameters. So what would you rate as the top five things that practitioners should be treating the finite responses with um, compared to their infinite incidence? Right, so there's three finite responses. There's inflammation. There's oxidative stress and there's immune dysfunction. So the first question is, how do I define each of those? So there's biomarkers that you measure for each of those. Mm -hmm. And I won't get too detailed here, but for inflammation, for example, it's high sensitivity C-reactive protein. Yep. All right, so if your inflammation's high, you got a lot of choices. You can make it three fatty acids, curcumin, quercetin, boswellia, and there's drugs that reduce inflammation. Okay, that's fairly easy. Oxidative stress, you've got all kinds of things you can measure there. Oxidize the LDL, you've got urinary metabolites, F2 isoprostanes, MDA, all these things are available. So if your oxidative stress is high, you want to identify what's causing it, but also how can you increase oxidative defense. So that's your diet, your good nutrition. There's all types of supplements you can take, you know, like coenzyme Q10, lipoic acid, vitamin C, vitamin E, etc. And then the last one is autoimmune. So autoimmune is measured by, for example, thyroid antibodies. And then that's a tough one because you got to identify why you're setting off the immune reaction. Right. That's a little harder to treat, balancing the T cells and the B cells. There's not any magical drug or magical nutrient unless it's got a lot of side effects. I mean, certainly I can zap your immune system with a lot of drugs. <laughs> 
uh, like high dose steroids, for example, and you'll feel better and your immune system cranks down. But then you got all the side effects mm -hmm. after doing that. Getting a little bit down into nitty gritty here, what's the clinical significance of the micro RNAs with regards to say, yeah. say diastolic function? Right, so micro RNAs are new described coding messenger RNAs that are totally different from what we used to thought. These little boogers are flying around and they're doing things that change your genetic expression that we didn't even know about. It was always DNA yeah. and messenger RNA. Well, now we got microRNAs. It may even be more important than our traditional model. So these little microRNAs can cause havoc in everything, not just cardiovascular disease, but probably cancer and diabetes and strokes and so forth. But related to the heart, if uh, there are certain microRNAs that will turn off the bad genes, and if you don't have those microRNAs, you start getting a big heart or heart attack or congestive heart failure, you get hypertension. So all these things are important, and we can measure microRNAs now. Not so much clinically yet, but in the research lab, but soon we'll be measuring them routinely. I have to put you on the spot about LDL because the, you know, the medicos would say that HDL is no longer a protective molecule and that large trials now cast doubt on its protective action. What would you say to these detractors of HDL? How would you explain its functionality? Uh, lipidology is rapidly changing. And unless you keep up with lipidology and you make these, uh, I call, uh, uh, stand in your stone statements, uh, you're gonna be left in a paleolithic knowledge base. And, um, and so every day there's a, a new theory, there's a new concept, and what I say today can be very different in, in three months. Yep. So what, what I'll say today is here's what I know is to be accurate with the, the qualification that it could be changing. So LDL measurement by itself is obsolete. HDL measurement by itself is obsolete. You have to look what's inside this, okay? So for example, if you go and look at your garbage can from the outside, you got a big pail and a little pail. You don't know what's in the garbage can until you pick it up and take a look, right? Mm -hmm. So if you look at the LDL garbage can and you look inside, it can be big LDL or little LDL. It can be modified LDL or it can be native LDL. They're all different. Yeah. So you have to look at the components. How many particles do you have? What size are they? Are they modified, et cetera? Same thing with HDL. You look in there and say, well, it looks like good HDL in here, clean garbage. But what if it's not? What if it's dysfunctional HDL? I don't care if your level's 100. Doesn't mean a thing if it's dysfunctional. It's like a garbage truck with four flat tires. You can't go pick up the garbage if the, the tires are flat. So it's a dysfunctional thing. So we've got to learn to measure now dysfunctionality. So in one way, when you say HDL doesn't mean anything, that's not true. HDL is extremely important. It does all kinds of things. So if you have functional HDL, okay, that works. HDL is crucial to cleaning up the mess that's being deposited in the cells, which is the bad LDL, to take it out. That's reverse cholesterol transport. So the naysayers who have said HDL is not important, uh, that you don't need to even put people on medications that raise HDL or make it functional are missing the whole story here. And there's the, if you remember uh, a couple of years ago, they bashed niacin. Mm. Uh, there were people that said niacin's dead, don't use niacin. Totally inappropriate in my opinion. Niacin is a very good drug. It's got good clinical data, but it depends on what you're giving the niacin for, for. you know? So if it changes functionality, important, but if it doesn't change functionality, but it only raises the level, 
probably don't get an outcome. So once again, you get back to what are you treating, what are the genetics underlying that, and what are you what's your outcome going to be? You mentioned today one of the gene SNPs called SCAR-B1. Yes. Took me by surprise. Can you take... That's the first. <laughs> can you take me through that again, please? This is totally new to me. Okay, so SCAR-B1 is a genetic SNP that affects the receptor on the liver for HDL cholesterol. So you have, here's your liver. Yep. You have your HDL floating around. It comes in and attaches to the B1, the SB1 receptor. All right, if that receptor doesn't work, it doesn't dock. So the HDL, which has been going around, cleaning up all the garbage. Yep, so nice. now it's a garbage truck full of garbage. Comes over, typically docks, unloads the garbage, and reprocesses itself to a new HDL to go back and do its good things. Mm -hmm. So what happens? No docking, HDL keeps floating around, so you measure it, HDL's present, it's very high because you can't get rid of it, but it's totally worthless. So it's probably more um, it's relevant just, when somebody's got a high HDL yes, level? Yes, so it has a, you have a very high HDL level, and most of it's dysfunctional which means they're at very high risk for coronary heart disease because they have no methodology to, to take care of the LDL that's accumulating. So I'm now getting that picture that you painted before. It doesn't matter how much, it, like a large amount of HDL doesn't really matter as long as, if it's not, if it's it's not, not functional, functional. Yeah. it's not, not gonna be a benefit. So I have to ask you a question from Mike Ash. Very good. If metabolomics looks at the effects of dietary manipulation of genes, why do we bother measuring SNPs? Why don't we just do metabolomics? Because isn't that where the pedal hits the metal? I can understand the question, <clears throat> which basically means uh, you're looking at metabolic parameters that have an impact on the mitochondria, for example. And theoretically, if you clean all that up, that's great. But here's the question. How do you clean it up? if you don't know what the SNPs are. So for example, if I have a SCAR-B1 SNP or I have an IP21 SNP, and all I see is what's coming out the bottom, then I ask, why is it coming out the bottom? I don't know why it's coming out the bottom. I might be able to give something and start guessing, you know, this is like the shotgun approach, but what I want to do is bullet. I'll say, your IP21 gene is really off. You've got a homozygote. So what I'm going to do, I'll take you off of sweetened beverages, I'm going to put you on omega-3s, I'm going to put you on a Mediterranean diet, I'm going to do all these great things, I'm going to turn that gene off. If I turn the gene off, then I'm going to have some multiple downstream effects because that gene is controlling a huge domino effect all the way down. So it's enormous. So any genetic SNP that you have that you can turn that gene off is going to have an effect on metabolomics. So you keep turning them off, turning them off, turning them off, and eventually all that stuff that's coming out that's not good will get better. And then you figure out what part of that circle, what part of that spoke you need to fix. Roberto Marcioli of the Gissi um, group Gissi, Gissi uh, was obviously a proponent with the Gissi-P and the Gissi-HF um, trials of the actions of fish oil in preventing secondary um, events in cardiovascular disease. Marcioli has now presented a paper basically flipping his opinion of that, saying fish oils don't have an action or a benefit in secondary prevention of heart disease. What's your call? 
Um, respectfully disagree. Um, I think that there's a lot of issues there that were not addressed. Ask the question in the GC trial, two things. Well, several things. Number one, did any of the, any of the omega-3 trials, did any of them measure omega-3 status at the beginning of the trials? Do you think so? Um, How many? Don't know. Zero. Not the jealous? None of them. Measured an index of omega-3 capacity right. at the beginning of the trial. That's number one. Number two, what's the quality of the fish oil or the omega-3 that was used? Yeah. Did they check anything at the end to verify that people had taken them, other than maybe a pill count, mm. to see if something internally had changed a parameter? How many did that? Zero. Uh -huh. So here you are giving an omega-3 to a group, a large group of people in whom you don't even know what their status is at the beginning. You didn't measure what their status was at the end. You have no idea of the quality. You didn't measure their genomics, so you don't have any idea who's gonna to respond to what. And the doses were all over the board, from low end of like 200 milligrams a day up to higher doses. So how, do you, how could you possibly make this broad statement that omega-3s are good or bad based on those clinical trials without better data. So if you look at really good trials, it did the appropriate things. Omega-3s always come out looking quite good. So beside the SNP measurement, what would you rate as say, let's say the top five I'll go, because top three just doesn't give us enough. Let's say the top five interventions that a practitioner can give to somebody at risk of cardiovascular adverse oh, events. Oh, easy. It's very simple. Number one is you eat the best possible diet you can. By that I mean probably based on good science would be the Predimed diet mm -hmm. with extra virgin olive oil and nuts, number one. Number two is you exercise every day appropriately, different muscle groups, aerobic and resistance exercise. Number three, you get exactly 7.5 to 8.5 hours of sleep per night. You go out of those ranges, you start to get increased risk of everything, diabetes, obesity, coronary heart disease, Alzheimer's, you name it. Number four, get your body composition to normal. Not your weight, your body composition. What's your visceral fat, what's your total body fat? Because lean muscle mass is important, body fat you don't want. So if you look at body weight, you're gonna miss the boat, okay? Obviously, you don't smoke, that's an easy one, and reduce your stress. Dr. Mark Houston, ever since I first heard you speak at IFM 2004 on diabetes, insulin resistance and obesity, you've enamoured me and you've been a teacher of me, and I'd really like to thank you for joining us pleasure. at the 2016 Symposium. Thanks. Thanks, Andrew. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today on FX Medicine, Please engage with us and let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in contact with us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au, or look for FX Medicine in your favourite social media platform. You can also rate and review us on iTunes, and we'd really like to thank those who have already rated us. It's through your continued support that enables us to bring you current, complex and relevant topics to enhance your practice of natural medicine.